like to this evening cover chapters 30 and 31 as they sort of take us to, as we'll see, the end of Job's words, as Job's been kind of giving a long response here. And then as we come from chapter 32, for the next number of chapters, uh, we'll meet a new individual. Uh, We'll see Elihu, who will begin to speak a little bit. And then thankfully, uh, not too far off in the near distant future, finally we're going to get God's word on the whole matter. And that's what we've all been kind of wanting for and longing for. It's almost like the rewards you get for journeying through the book of Job. You kind of get the the best at the end. And remember, it reminds me of Jesus' words um, that uh, God has a way of sort of saving the best for last. Uh, and I think that's certainly just the way of the Lord, that the, the, the latter part is the best part, and certainly heaven is the greatest example of that. He saves the best for last. But Job has been battling and struggling, suffering, and not only the actual pain and difficulty of the process he's going through, but on top of that, just the mental anguish, the emotional grief, even just the spiritual uh, kind of frustration and confusion that he's been wrestling through as he has voices speaking to him, and no doubt as he's just on his own, uh, you know, hearing his own voices. I don't know about you, but I hear voices. Please not if you're Okay, a few people make me feel better. Uh, It's not just the voices of other people. Sometimes I'm uh, trying to distinguish the own voices in my head, which one's the Lord, which one's my flesh, which one is, you know, the devil's lying voice whispering in my ear. No doubt Job's a man. He's battling these same kind of things as we've been uh, seeing. In fact, chapter 29, Job was sort of kind of rehearsing and reflecting back on how his life used to be before all the difficulties and the hardship and this great tragedy had come upon him and the trial that he's currently enduring. And he was talking about how things once were. We saw at the end of the chapter where he was talking about how he said in verse 21 that men used to listen to me and they would wait and keep silent for my counsel and how Job was just very well respected. He was someone who people would go to and look to. He was greatly admired. Uh, He said the last verse of chapter 29, I even chose the way for them. The idea is he provided leadership and sat as chief. The idea is a leader among them. So I dwell as king in the army, as one who comforts mourners. So at one time, Job was greatly respected. People valued his counsel. He lived an impeccable life of integrity and godliness And now as he comes to chapter 30, again, kind of back to drawing the contrast, he says, but now they mock me. That is, at one time they waited for Job's counsel. They thought that Job had valuable things to say, but he says, now people mock me, even men younger than I. And of course, that was great disdain in that culture. One of the things that I think we have lost that was of great value in prior generations and certainly ancient culture was that there was a tremendous level of respect for elders. Uh, And there was just on a natural level, not even so much a spiritual issue, but just on a natural letter, uh, those younger had a great respect for those who were older. You paid respect to those who were older than you. And I think that was a very valuable thing that existed. And sadly, it's one of the things I feel like we've kind of lost as the generations are Uh, going along now, but he says even, again, this is the idea, it was shocking, even men younger than I, young men are mocking me now as an older man, Job says, and referring to even who these young men were, he says, men whose fathers I disdained to put with the dogs of my flock. So Job's kind of giving an indication of what kind of men these were. 
He says, these were individuals I wouldn't even allow their fathers not only to be with my flocks, I wouldn't even let their fathers be with the dogs that ran among my flocks. And yet these are the ones who are now mocking me. Indeed, he says, what profit is the strength of their hands to me? Their vigor has perished. They are gaunt from want and famine, fleeing late to the wilderness, desolate and waste, who pluck mallow by the bushes and broom tree roots for their food. Now, again, it's kind of difficult for us to, to grasp there, but the idea of if you're eating broom tree roots, uh, times are tough. Uh, and that's, that's, not, that's not a good indication. He says, verse 5, they were driven out from among men. They shouted at them as a thief. And they had to live in the clefts of the valleys and the caves of the earth and the rocks. Among the bushes they brayed and under the nettles they nestled. And they were sons of fools. Yes, sons of vile men. They were scourged from the land. So Job says, you know, here are these individuals. Uh, They're sort of the least among the community. Those who are vile, he says, fools and vile men. And yet these are the ones now who have no respect for me and are reproaching me and mocking me, he says, verse 9, of what they were doing. And now, he says, because of the condition that he's in, now I am their taunting song. Yes, I am their byword, that is, one who is mocked and disgraced. They abhor me. They keep far from me. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. Now, again, that was one of the highest forms of insult in that ancient Mideastern culture. That if you would spit upon someone, that was showing great disdain and disregard for them. If you spit in someone's face, that was the highest degree of insult you could possibly pay. And so this is what Job's trying to picture here. Now, what a disgrace that would be. You know, here are these vile individuals kind of. I guess um, the term that's coming to my mind is like the hoodlums, right? I mean, these are, here's the hoodlums in the society, those who are just, you know, real rebels and are nothing but troublemakers in the community. And these are the individuals who are now disgracefully spitting in the face of someone like Job, who was this godly man with integrity, who should have been very well respected. And now they're just looking down upon him in his condition looking at him as if he's just a a worthless piece of trash, the way that they're treating him with no respect at this time. Job says, they don't even hesitate to spit right in my face. Now, as I look at that, verse 9 and 10, there in some ways uh, sounds a lot, honestly, like even what Jesus himself experienced in his own humanity. I mean, how much of a disgrace was it for them to not hesitate to spit in Job's face But remember, the Bible tells us that humanity in their depraved condition even went so far in how low they sunk that they actually mocked and ridiculed and spit upon Jesus himself, our very Lord. Isaiah chapter 50 refers to how this very thing would happen. Isaiah 50, as prophetically speaking of the Lord, says, I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard, and I did not hide my face from shame and from spitting. So again, if it's an insult to spit in the face of someone like Job, think about the reality as we read in the Gospels that people were spitting upon Jesus. I mean, when you consider the the degrading action that that was, the incredible insult that that was, that they were actually spitting upon our Lord, 
in the midst of his life as a man and his humanity. Though he deserved none of it, yet he endured all of that humble experience on our behalf. Verse 11 says, because, referring now to God, Job says, he has loosed my bowstring and afflicted me. They have cast off restraint before me. Now, the idea of loosing the bowstring, once you loose the string on a bow, you've done what? You've basically made that bow kind of rendered worthless, right? It has no profit. It's not effective anymore. And he says, this is what I feel like God's done. I feel like God has taken away all the usefulness from my life. I feel like my life is kind of at this state just become useless anymore. I feel like God's rendered my life useless in this afflicted condition that I'm now in. He says, at my right hand, the rabble arises. They push away my feet. They raise against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. Job says, they promote my calamity and they have no helper. The idea is they they have no helper to offer me. The idea is, Job says, they offer no help whatsoever. They come as broad breakers under the ruinous storm they roll along that is they would come against job like a ruinous storm terrors are turned upon me they pursue my honor that is to take away my honor as the wind and my prosperity the idea is job saying my welfare has passed away like a cloud so job's just describing the horrific treatment that these people were bringing to him how really they were seeking to do nothing but actually bring about job's ruin And he says, if things weren't already difficult enough, it's like the constant opposition of these wicked and evil people. All they're trying to do is plot and plan for the ruin of my life personally. I mean, I read verse 13 there. They break up my path. That is, they're always trying to destroy his path from getting progress forward. They promote my calamity and they offer no help to me. I read that and I think to myself, boy, not a whole lot has changed. You know, to some degree, we see the same thing going on. There is very clear indication, obviously, whether it's certain political figures, you can fill in the blanks, that it becomes clearly obvious that sometimes there are literally individuals and groups who are honestly not just trying to resist somebody, but actually promote their calamity, actually trying to make concerted efforts to actually bring about someone's ruin. Not only not just saying, hey, we don't agree with you, but doing everything in their power to actually promote their destruction, to try and do things to bring about their calamity. And, you know, so sad that we can become that evil as human beings that even when we don't agree with someone, we don't like someone, that that sadly people sometimes can become that evil in their wicked intentions, actually trying to destroy different individuals that may actually be trying to bring about some good and do something decent to help out. And certainly this was Job, and yet people were promoting his calamity and trying to come against him like a ruinous storm. He says, verse 16, And now my soul is poured out because of my plight. The days of affliction take hold of me. He says, verse 17, My bones are pierced in me at the night, and my gnawing pains take no rest. So again, Job's describing his experiences. He says, it's like piercing pain. He says, all night long, like deep within my bones, it's like piercing pain. He says, my gnawing pains take no rest. The idea is constant pain. 
never having a break, always being in daily, hourly gnawing pain. If you've ever had you know, health issues or chronic pain, uh, that's what Job's describing there. My gnawing pains, he says, they, they never take a rest. By great force, he says, my garment is disfigured. It binds me about as the collar of my coat. He, now he's talking about God here, has cast me into the mire and I've become like dust and ashes. So Job has this picture in his mind. He says, I feel like, he's using a picturesque uh, imagery here. He said, I feel like God has grabbed me by the collar, has run me out the door and basically thrown me into the mud like he's just done with me. Again, this is the experience that Job's wrestling with in the way that he feels like that God's dealing with him in this time. He says, verse 20, now, and we kind of transition to prayer. And as we said before, this is the thing we see about Job. He's struggling. He's wrestling mentally, emotionally, but at least he never stops communicating with God through the process because here he now turns to prayer again. Verse 20, he says, I cry out to you, but you do not answer me. I stand up and you regard me, but you have become cruel to me. With the strength of your hand, you oppose me. He says, you lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride on it, for you spoil my success, for I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all the living. So Job says, verse 20, God, I feel like that I'm not just praying. I feel like I cry out to you. God, I feel like I'm begging you and crying out to you, he says, but I don't feel like I'm getting any answer. In fact, I don't feel like you're answering my prayer or my cry for help or mercy in this particular matter that I keep crying out to you about. Have you ever felt like that before? You ever felt like there's a matter or a situation and you're just genuinely crying out to God and yet you feel like God's just not answering? Whether it's that you're not hearing any word from him, any direction, you don't feel like he's saying anything, you feel like it's kind of silent on the other end, or that you don't feel like God's answering in the sense that, God, why aren't you acting? Why aren't you answering? You know what I'm asking. Why aren't you bringing about the thing that I'm crying out to you about? Well, this is what Job's dealing with at this point in his life. In fact, you can tell he's struggling because look at the language he uses in verse 21 and 22 he says god he says i feel like you're being cruel with me i feel like lord you've become cruel i feel like the strength of your hand isn't not only not just helping me but he says i'm starting to feel like god like you're actually opposing me i'm starting to feel like that you're working in opposition to me boy the language in verse 22 he says god you spoil my success in other words, Job was saying that he felt like God would not allow him to succeed. You ever felt like that before? Where you almost struggle mentally and maybe spiritually feeling like, God, I feel like it's almost like you won't let me succeed. It's like something's dysfunctional. I feel like, God, you've, you know, you're, you're kind of like hindering me from ever making progress. God, I don't understand. It's like you're spoiling any opportunity for me to get ahead. Every time I'm trying to succeed, I feel like you keep working in opposition and you won't let me prosper. You won't let me experience success. This was Job's struggle and what he's going through. He says, verse 24, surely he would not stretch out his hand 
against a heap of ruins. That's the way Job pictures himself at this time. It feels like he's just a heap of ruins, a ruined life. If they cry out when he destroys it, have I not? Now you can tell he's starting to get frustrated. Have I not wept for him who was in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? So he says, I've had pity on others when they were in trouble. I've grieved and wept for others in their poverty and their hardship. Verse 26, but when I looked for good, see, he senses injustice now, but when I looked for good, evil came to me. And when I waited for the light, then came darkness. My heart is in turmoil and cannot rest. Days of affliction confront me. I go about mourning, but not in the sun. I stand up in the assembly and I cry out for help. But notice, no response, no assistance. He says, I just feel like I'm pushed aside, like I'm a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. And I don't know what that is, but it doesn't sound good. My skin, he says. Now, here's another indication of the physical affliction. Remember, Job's going through great health issues at this time, pain and anguish. He says, my skin grows black and falls from me. The idea there seems to be, you know, of his skin actually beginning to, you know, deteriorate, to die, the flesh becoming gangrene and the blackness seeming to indicate that his skin is actually beginning to, you know, die and beginning to fall off because of that. He says, my bones burn with fever. So we know part of his experience was struggling with fevers, no doubt infection connected to that. My harp is turned to mourning and my flute to the voice of those who weep. Now, as Job comes to chapter 31, he again returns back to this idea of, again, because he's struggling with what seems to be in his mind injustice here, kind of this idea of, look, I don't understand. You've been insulting me and saying the problem is that I've lived wrong. But Job says the thing I can't reconcile. And again, it's not as if Job is trying to brag. He's just making an honest evaluation of his life to say, look, I, I, I have tried to live right. I've tried to do what's pleasing to the Lord and stay away from sin. So I don't understand how this could be the consequence of sin. And now he begins in these verses to refer to some of the ways that he has lived a godly and a righteous life. We're going to notice this repetitious phrase where Job's going to say, if I have, if I have, if I have. In other words, he's going to say, look, if I've done this wrong then I guess I should deal with consequences for that. And if I've sinned in this way, and if I've sinned in this way, and the implication when Job's saying that is, I haven't. If I had done these things, that I could understand maybe that this is a consequence of my sin. But what Job is saying, as he puts it in that negative light, is he's implying, I have not done those things. And so I don't understand why I'm struggling and suffering in the degrees that I am. The first thing he mentions is how he had avoided giving in to lust towards women. He says, verse 31, or verse one of chapter 31, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? Boy, there's a great phrase there, especially in a day and age where pornography runs rampant 
and lust through things that we look upon are so much more accessible than they were generations ago. I mean, years ago, if you wanted to look at filth or pornography, I mean, you had to have the courage to go walk into an adult bookstore and wonder if somebody's going to see you come walking out. But I mean, nowadays between you know cell phones and the internet and everything, I mean, it is so easy in a private, hidden, personal way you can look at filth and subject yourself to perversity pretty much anywhere you want. Uh, sitting in your car, in your bedroom, at your desk at work. I mean, the accessibility, sadly, has increased greatly to where we are living in a culture that is becoming dominated by the sin of lust and perversity. And, and Job here makes such a wonderful statement. Again, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. The idea is a covenant of, I've made a, a commitment, a contract with my eyes. I've made a commitment with my eyes. And you know, it would be good for all of us to some degree to perhaps make a covenant with my eyes. So he says, why should I look upon a young woman? The idea is to look upon in a lustful way. Again, Job was a married man. And Job said, look, I understand. I could do what others do. I could allow my eyes to be free to rule, you know, rule my life. And Job understood that the you know, eye becomes the gate to the soul. You know, Jesus talked about that. If, you, if your eye is good, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is dark or bad, that, that it fills the inner man with darkness. And Job's speaking of just how he avoided the sin of lust, that he using self-control and practicality. Again, and I love the practicality of the statement. I've made a covenant with my eyes. There's practicality to that. I made a commitment that I would not look upon a young woman. Again, that just shows great wisdom. There's a very practical aspect to controlling the struggle with lust in our hearts. It is, is you become practical about it. You don't be hyper-spiritual. You, you become practical. You do things. You set things in place. You set up filters. You know, there's a great uh, program that exists. It's been around for many, many years. I've helped many men who've struggled with pornography with it, and it comes actually from Job 31, verse 1. There's a program called Covenant Eyes, and it's basically a program designed to monitor everything you look at on your devices, whether your phones, your computers, or whatever, and you establish an accountability partner connected to it. You know what? Wonderful program, especially if it becomes a big struggle. And, and here, a very practical thing that Job said is many times a practical help that we all need. You know, we have to make that decision that we're not going to allow our eyes to look upon something that's perverse to where it begins to become a struggle with the sin of lust in our lives. Job says, for what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the almighty from on high? Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity, Job connects the dots. Verse four, he says, does not he see my ways and count all my steps? So amazing. Even in the ancient culture, Job said, look, if I'm looking at things I shouldn't be looking upon with my eyes, particularly in a lustful manner towards a woman who's not my wife or someone who is somebody else's wife or just any young woman who does not belong to me, then Job says, even if I think I'm the only one staring at that with a lustful desire in my heart, he says, does not God see my ways? God sees what I'm doing. 
God counts all my steps. Again, nothing is ever hidden from the Lord. And that should be the strongest thing that keeps us accountable is that we realize that God sees what we're looking upon. God sees what we're viewing and watching and what's going on inside of our hearts. And it matters to him. Remember, Jesus himself said that very thing. He says, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus said, but I say unto you, he who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, God cares about what's going on in the heart. God sees what we're doing practically, but God also sees what's going on inside of us internally. And Job understood this, and this is what helped him in his integrity. He says, does he not see all my ways and count all my steps? He then says, verse 5, going on, if I have walked with falsehood, dishonesty. Again, this is going to be the beginning of these statements now where Job says, if I've done this, and every time he's saying that, if I have, he's implying I have not, meaning if I had done it, okay, then I'm guilty. But he's indicating I'm not guilty of these things, which again, great lessons to show you what an impeccable character this godly man had. If I had walked in falsehood, or if my foot had hastened to deceit, then let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. So we see that Job avoided not only the sin of lust and perversity, but Job also avoided the sin of dishonesty and lying. He avoided kind of false business practices. He wasn't cheating people in his business practice as he weighed out the scales. He maintained integrity in business. Verse 7, if my step has turned from the way or my heart has walked after my eyes or if any spot adheres to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Yes, let my harvest be rooted out. So Job says, if I'm guilty of these things, then he says, then then I'm willing to bear the consequence for my wrongdoing. Verse 9, he goes on to say, and if my heart has been enticed by a woman, Or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, he's beginning to address the subject of adultery now, pursuing another man's wife or anyone who's not his wife. He says, if my heart has been enticed by a woman, if I've lurked at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another. The idea there, your translation may render that, the idea is grinding of grain. The idea is become a servant to the benefit of another household. The idea is may my wife become a a blessing to another man instead of me, if I've in some ways been unfaithful towards her, and let others bow down over her. The idea is to be sexually intimate with her. For that would be wickedness, he says, verse 11. Yes, it would be iniquity deserving of judgment. For that would be a fire that consumes to destruction and would root out all my increase. So Job had avoided the sin of adultery. And as he refers to the sin of adultery, you can tell he recognized the tremendous destructive effect that it has upon a man in that way. He refers to in verse 11 that it would be considered wickedness. It would be iniquity deserving of judgment. Again, keep in mind, this was prior to the time of the Mosaic law. Ultimately, in the Mosaic law, adultery becomes something codified by God in the Mosaic law that was a capital offense like murder. 
You actually lost your life if you were guilty of adultery. So again, God knowing the damaging effect that it has upon us and our families and so forth, wanting us to be steering clear of such a thing. And Job here, even prior to the actual law of Moses, recognized the tremendous damage that it would be like a fire that consumes to destruction. It's like setting a, a match off in a fire and just kind of you know, bringing great destruction. Uh, to a household, and certainly, again, we see the damage that it indeed can bring into homes, and it's so sad that in our culture, it's sort of just glossed over like it's no big deal. Talk to anyone who's gone down that journey, and I'm sure they'd be glad to tell you, look, if, if you're playing with the matches, stop now before you burn the whole house down, and, and you experience great problems and tremendous pain and destruction and Again, we live in a culture where people act like this is such a trivial thing to just be unfaithful to a spouse or whatever, and God views it completely differently. God knows the heartache and the destruction like a forest fire, like a house fire that it brings. And Job says, I've avoided this area of adultery. I've been faithful to my wife, Job is implying. He says, verse 13, going on, and if I've despised the cause of my male or female servant, that is, if I was uncompassionate to my servants or my workers, Job says, when they complained against me. What then shall I do when God rises up? So if God were to hold him account, if he was mistreating his servants, when he punishes, how shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one fashion us in the womb? So you get a little glimpse into Job's heart there as he speaks about how he had not been unfair in his treatment to his servants. Again, Job had many servants who worked in his large household. And he says, look, I didn't despise them or mistreat them. In fact, Job says, I didn't even look down upon them as inferior. You see his language in verse 15. He says, did not he, God, who made me in the womb also make them? So though they were Job's servants and though they worked in his household, Job didn't look down upon them as inferior or less value. Job says the same God who fashioned me fashioned them. Job understood the value and the equality of every person, no matter what their status is. No matter what their status is or their social position, Job said, look, every person has equality in the sight of God. And again, what a, a beautiful thing to see the the heart of Job is a man of God, that he understood that, the value. Nothing in Job to look critically down upon other people is less important than himself. He says, verse 16, if then, again, I have kept the poor from their desire. So Job says, if in some way I had been sinful by neglecting the poor or caused the eyes of the widow to fail, being discompassionate to those who were vulnerable and in need or eaten my morsel by myself, so that the fatherless could not eat of it. But from my youth, I reared him as a father, and from my mother's womb, I guided the widow. If I have seen any perish for lack of clothing, or any poor man without covering, if his heart has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, and if I raised my hand against the fatherless, when I saw I had help in the gate, then let my arm fall from my shoulder, he says. Again, if I'm wrong in these things, let me bear the guilt. He says, if I've mistreated the widow, if I've neglected the poor, if I haven't helped out the orphan or the fatherless, then he says, 
then may I suffer for that. May my arm be torn from my socket. For destruction from God is a terror to me because of his magnificence I cannot endure. So uh, again, Job points out another aspect of his life is that he had not sinned in the area of lack of compassion. And that's the implication here, a lack of compassion, that he wouldn't have compassion on the poor or help out the widow or help out the fatherless. The idea is just the sin of having a cold, discompassionate heart that doesn't have an interest in helping other people or responding to needs. And you know, interesting that Job would point that out as something that he actually saw as sinful and wrong. You know, a lot of times there are these areas of what from God's perspective is sin just as much as any other area of sin that we kind of look at as almost like we talk about little white lies. We think almost like certain sins are like little insignificant sins. And I would venture to say that I think that probably one area where we would be quick to not be that maybe sensitive about being convicted about is a lack of love in our lives, a lack of compassion. Job says, if I don't have compassion for people, that's sinful. If I don't have love for people in need, that's sinful. A lot of times we wouldn't think of something. Oh, if I commit adultery, yeah, a guy commits adultery, kill him. Well, from God's perspective, sin is sin. And God wants us to walk in love and to show love for people. And God cares about vulnerable people and orphans and widows and those who are poor. And and God cares about us showing love towards people. And, you know, we don't often think of something like just having a cold heart is sin before God. And it's wrong before God, just as other things are wrong before God. And Job says here, I, I wasn't guilty of that. I made sure that I kept my heart tender and that I showed love and I offered help to people who were... In need, he says, when, if I've raised my hand against the fathers, when I saw I had help in the gate, Job said, if I could help, I tried to help. You know, what a great reminder for us that we maybe all seek in some ways to be a little more sensitive and grow in that area sometimes rather than kind of just brush it off as it's no big deal at times to maybe be a little more callous and cold hearted to lack sensitivity when maybe we should have a little bit more in the way we interact with people around us. Job says, verse 24, if I have made gold my hope and said of fine gold, you are my confidence. If I've rejoiced because my wealth was great and because my hand had gained much. The idea is Job saying, I also avoided the sin of greed and the sin of the love of money, making again, gold and wealth, his confidence, his hope. The idea is I didn't trust in my riches and Job had a lot of wealth. <laughs> Job had a lot of resources. We saw in the beginning chapters, Job was a very, very rich man. But apparently, Job never let those riches have a wrong place in his heart. He was able to be wealthy without trusting in that wealth and making that wealth become his God or his confidence. He avoided the sin of greed. He said, I haven't rejoiced because my wealth was great or because my hand had gained much. And boy, that's quite an accomplishment. Because it's hard. It's difficult to be wealthy. It's difficult to experience prosperity prosperity, and manage that in a healthy way. Typically, as we increase in wealth or we are blessed or we prosper, a lot of times that can start to become a real stumbling block in our lives. 
where we start to trust too much in our wealth and resources, or we start to maybe live in a way where we're loving that wealth a little bit more than we should in our lives in the prosperity. And Job says, I didn't let that happen. I didn't let money begin to control me, though I was increasing in wealth. He says, verse 26, if I've observed the sun when it shines or the moon moving in brightness, again, they worship the sun, they worship the moon. So he's now talking about idolatry. He says, I avoided the sin of idolatry so that my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand. These were things that would be done in the worship of the sun and the moon. This also, he said, would be an iniquity if I did it deserving of judgment for I would have denied God who is above. So he says, if I would have worshiped anything that the creator had made, any of his creation, the sun, the moon, the stars. Again, this was the problem, remember, in Romans chapter one, where God speaks there through Paul the apostle, how people had began to worship the creature rather than the creator and beginning to worship all that God had made. And look, whenever anything has a higher degree of importance, in my life than God does, that's a form of idolatry. And so look, idolatry, can it doesn't have to be, oh, I don't have any little statues on my mantle or anything in my car that I you know, give allegiance to or bow down to. Look, it doesn't have to be worshiping the sun, the moon, the stars. Idolatry is anything that has greater importance in our life than the creator God himself. We're not to have any gods before him at all that is in his presence or before him in priority and whenever something someone anything in this life starts to have greater importance to me than god does and look that can be a thing that can be a possession that can be a person that can be you know some pleasure that we enjoy whatever it may be that can begin to become idolatry. And Job says, I would not let myself become guilty of the sin of idolatry in my life. First John tells us there in the New Testament, John, this older man giving wisdom to those who are younger, he says, little children, keep your heart from idols. In other words, idolatry is not just a problem of Old Testament people. Idolatry is just as much a problem today. Anything can become idolatry in our lives. And he says we have to protect and keep our hearts from idolatry beginning to develop there. Job, again, I mean, again, quite the man, guilty of things that he could have been. But he says, I've not become guilty of idolatry. He says, if I have rejoiced at the destruction of him who hated me. So he's talking here about rejoicing in the destruction of your enemies. I'm sure none of us have ever struggled with that, right? Never rejoice when you hear something unfortunate happens to some enemy in your life. I know that's probably a, a struggle none of us have ever dealt with before. Job said, if I've done that or lifted up myself when evil found him, indeed, I have not allowed my mouth to sin. Again, very interesting the way Job says that by asking for a curse on his soul. If men of my tent have not said, who is there that has not been satisfied with meat? But no stranger had to lodge in the street, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. So Job says, look, not only was I not celebrating and rejoicing when bad and unfortunate things happened to those who mistreated me and hurt me, which is our natural tendency to do that. That's called revenge, 
and we all love revenge to some degree. Job says, I would not let myself fall prey to revenge. And he says, not only just doing it secretly in my heart, he says, verse 30, I also would not allow my mouth to sin. You know, I had that kind of noted. I wouldn't allow my mouth to sin. I wouldn't allow it. That's the idea. Again, that's a conscious choice. The Bible says to put a, you know, a, a guard over the door of our mouth and a gate over the door of our lips. The idea there, again, is think about it. The only muscle in our body that has kind of its own cage is our tongue. God's given an actual cage. You just you shut the cage. You just you shut the cage. If you shut the cage, you can't get in trouble with your tongue. And our tongue is so quick to be the thing that gets us into trouble, allowing our mouth to sin. Have you been allowing your mouth to sin? Well, just cut it out, God says. God says, don't allow it to happen. Take self-control over your mouth. Refrain. Be wise. Be cautious. Use restraint in your words. And the Bible tells us in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. Usually the more we talk, the more we go on to say, the more prone we are to say things that we should not say and to allow our mouths to sin. And Job says, I I sought to beware of this and to keep myself from sin with my mouth. If I've covered my transgression, he says, verse 33, as Adam, by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, because I feared the great multitude and dreaded the contempt of families so that I kept silence and did not go out the door. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark, he says, that the Almighty would answer me, that my prosecutor had written a book. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. And then Job calls heaven and earth, creation, to testify. He says, if I'm guilty, may creation testify. He says, if my hand or my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I've eaten its fruit without money, if I've stolen Then he says, or caused its owners to lose their lives. Then let the thistles grow instead of wheat. Let me reap the consequences for what I've done, he says. And the weeds instead of barley. And verse 40 says, the words of Job are ended. So interesting, Job comes to the closure of kind of his statements and his defense by basically saying, look, I know that I'm not perfect, but I also know that I'm not covering up some sin in my life right now. And that's the estimation of what Job's saying. I'm not claiming to be a perfect man, but he says, I've searched my heart. I've evaluated my life. I know how I was living. And he says, I know that right now, contrary to what they were trying to say to him, he says, verse 33, look what he's, if I had covered my transgression as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, Job says, I'm not doing that. Isn't it interesting that Job makes reference all the way back to Adam? All the way back to Adam. He says, look, I understand this is a problem for humanity. What's one of the chief problems of humanity? Not just sin. It's not dealing with our sin. Not dealing with our sin. Because he says there, if I had covered my transgressions as Adam. Think about it. When Adam disobeyed God, what does he do in the very next scene? 
It says he's sewing fig leaves together to cover his nakedness. Well, Adam covering his nakedness was a way of him covering his guilt. And then what is he doing? He's hiding from God all of a sudden because God comes through the garden. Adam, where are you? Prior to that, Adam wasn't hiding from God. It was the shame and the guilt that Adam felt that made him, one, try and cover up his sin and sense of guilt and made him go and hide because he was ashamed. And look, that was Adam's problem. From the very beginning, this is the same problem that plagues all of us as descendants of Adam. Look, we all sin. We all make mistakes. We all do things wrong. At times, we don't only just sin and miss the mark. Sometimes, like is stated here, we transgress. And what's transgression? Transgression is that willful defiance. It's, it's brazenly knowing the line and stepping over it anyway. And there's a difference and a distinction even made in the word of God. Sin is when you miss the mark. The idea is you can try really hard to do great every day. And because you are a flawed, broken individual as we are, you're going to slip up once in a while. You're going to say something you shouldn't. You're going to think things you shouldn't. You're going to do things you shouldn't. And you can try as hard as you can. You're still going to slip up and mess up once in a while. Transgression are those times where we willfully, consciously know something's wrong and we just selfishly do it anyway. It's just that defiance, that brazen defiance. And the tragedy is when we sin and when we transgress, rather than just dealing with it, we have this greater problem where we try and cover it up and we try and hide it. And we think somehow that we can hide it and there's not going to be a problem in regards to doing that. Look, that problem is as old as the Garden of Eden. It's a twisted part of me and you that we have inherited from Adam, that we've inherited from Adam, that as soon as we do wrong, we are prone in our guilt and shame to want to cover it up to want to go hide, to try and keep it under wraps. And look, ultimately, that never works out. And ultimately, that's something we never need to do now as God's people so much more because we have available to us the assurance of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so when we fail and when we sin, the wonderful thing is Job says, oh, I wish I had one to hear me. Here is my mark that the Almighty would answer me. If my prosecutor would write it in a book, look, yeah, there's a prosecutor. His name's the devil. But there's also an advocate. And there's an advocate, Jesus Christ, verse John tells us, who stands on our behalf as our defense attorney so that he can say, yes, Father, we know that he's guilty of this. And he's not even trying to cover it. He doesn't need to cover it because I've covered it. Because my blood is sufficiently atoned for that sin, that failure. And he doesn't need to live in guilt and shame and cover it and hide it. And and like Adam, try and do everything he can. Father, we know that it has been dealt with. And the prosecutor, the lying voice of the devil is silenced in an instance. And we who are guilty are proclaimed innocent because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So God's advice to us is when we sin, when we fail, whether it's because I've stumbled or whether we have blatantly transgressed, is just do one thing, confess. Just confess, because if we confess our sins, the Bible says, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we don't have to wander around in confusion and be tormented like Joe's friends are trying to torment him. 
is this suffering or struggle in your life connected to some sin that you didn't deal with or not? Look, if we live with a clean conscience before God, we can know that we're not perfect, but we also can know, look, I'm struggling, but it's not because maybe it's because of some sin, because I know where I stand with God with my sin, because I'm keeping a clear conscience between me and the Lord. We can avoid a whole lot of extra heartache, because I don't know about you, struggling's hard enough, ain't it? (laughs) I mean, isn't struggling hard enough when you're suffering because of this or in pain over that or dealing with this difficulty? Who wants the mental, emotional, spiritual anguish on top of all that? We can avoid all that by pleading the blood of Christ and living in clean conscience before God. Let's stand together.